Take it away, Derek. What's your question? Why do you guys talk about comics so much? Yeah. Comic books. Motherfucker, do you read them? 18 years. <laughs> Toothbrush is still fresh. <laughs> Did they have sex? Because, I mean, she Hulk, you know. Damn it, Tony. We went an entire episode without mentioning Maggot, and then you ruined it. Comic books. Motherfucker, do you read him? Batman's got his little fishbowl on his head, but <laughs> Superman doesn't. Cyclops was right. Except when he was wrong. Master Bruce, you are calm. I'm going to silently judge all of you. Shut up, beast. Shut up. <laughs> like, I've read it so many times, you know, it pretty much just crumbled in my hands. Come on, old chum. Comic books. Motherfucker, do you read them? See, I didn't hate Hellcat until you made me read this miniseries. It was just a joke, but you made it real, Justin. No. You made it real. I, I prefer my Dazzler singing, like, Creedence Clearwater Revival songs at Australian bars. Titty discs. In it. That's what to be known as from now on. Like, I'm going to go into the Marvel Wikipedia and edit that. Whatever it is. <laughs> get better than that. Comic books. Motherfucker, do you read them? Hey guys, welcome back to another news hound hungry horrific cackle craze tastic episode of Fanholes Comics. Motherfucker, do you read them? Hey, what's up guys? This is Derek, Derek WC. I'm going to be your host tonight, but I am not alone tonight. I've been joined by a very special guest. You may have heard of him on past podcasts. I don't know if you, you knew this or not, but you've already been like totally like the, the groundwork has been laid. You've totally been mentioned on the show before. I am here with Mayor McCheese himself, hamburger guy. I am here with Mr. Michael McIsaac. Hey, man, what's up, dude? Hey. Happy to be here. Yeah, it's 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 great to have you on. I, I know we talked about doing this and, and I thought what better I, I, I highly doubt anybody knows based on my hints what, what exactly we're talking about tonight, but maybe they, they saw the, the comic on the title show card and everything. But we're gonna be talking about the world of Metropolis issue number one tonight. And I think that's an issue that's both near and dear to myself and yourself, especially. But you know, sometimes what we do is before we get into the, the nitty gritty, like before we get into all the minutiae, the synopses and, and what happened in the issue and, and discuss it in all the minutiae and that kind of thing. Sometimes it's cool to have like an icebreaker. So I guess I wanted to talk with you because we were kind of discussing this in the pre-show. Like, I, I think we both have come to the conclusion like we've had very identical like like comic reading histories and and we like a lot of the same comics and a lot of the same art and things like that and so i i know we've probably had similar trajectories but i know i don't know all like the nitty gritty details about your comic origin story so i was just kind of curious like what what is your comic origin story well I think the real start for comic book collecting for me would have to be due to my love of Star Wars. I was born in the mid 70s, consider myself a child of the 80s, and you know, Star Wars was the be all end all for me from like starting from the age of say five. So in those days of you know the early 1980s, other than the movies, there was not much content out there it's i explained to my kids today you know and i don't think they really quite grasp that there were the movies and that was it and you couldn't even watch them on home video at that time you had to wait for like re-releases and whatnot so as a little kid starved for star wars content the first time i saw 
a Star Wars comic book on a rack, a news rack at a drugstore in the spring of 84, I think it was. It was like a revelation to me. It was like, oh, my God. And, you know, I, I begged my mom to let me get it and read it until it was falling apart. And it was <laughs> a few months later before I got my next one because I just I didn't know where and when and how to get yeah. comics. Yeah. And once I realized, you know, specific newsstand in my area, because I didn't even know that comic book stores were such a thing that they carried comic books and that I saw Star, you know, another issue of Star Wars there. And I remember on the letters page, the next issue box in the bottom right-hand corner saying in 30 days. And I actually counted 30 days from, from when, when I bought, bought that issue. issue. <laughs> and you know, to say, yeah, like, mom, mom, we have to go and get the next one. And it that was the beginning. From that point on, not a month went by that, I wasn't buying comics. And in those early days, Star Wars was definitely the linchpin for me. But other licensed comics came onto my radar pretty quickly. G.I. Joe being one, Transformers being another one. I think issue five of Transformers was mm. the first one that I picked up with Shockwave, Shockwave. on the cover. And that, that was a pretty shocking issue to start off on because basically the Autobots, except for Ratchet, had all been right, uh, right. destroyed. Those were the three big ones. Picked up a couple of other licensed type books around that time as well. But my foray into superhero comics came when in, in one of those books, there was an ad for Secret Wars 2, number one. And I recognized some of the characters in the image that it, it had, if I'm remembering right, it was the cover of Secret Wars 2, number one. And then it also showed that there were, you know, crossover issues. And I recognized Captain America and I recognized Iron Man and a couple of the other characters Thanks to Spider-Man and his amazing friends, which I watched religiously on Saturday mornings as, as a kid. And so when I saw Secret Wars 2, number one on the stands, it was actually like, oh, I want to start collecting superhero comics. And this may be a good starting point. And looking back, it was kind of confusing. <laughs> Especially not having read the original Secret Wars miniseries. But it was especially I... confusing because Spider-Man was teaching the Beyonder how to poop. Yes. And I nevertheless, you know, I fell in love with it. I got hooked on Marvel superhero comics then. And within a few months time, I was buying most of the team books. I really liked the team books. I felt like I was getting more bang for my buck if there were more superheroes in the title. So by the end of 1985, I was buying X-Men, Avengers, West Coast Avengers, Fantastic Four, Power Pack, Alpha Flight. I think every single Marvel team book at that time, with the exception of Defenders. Uh, and, and I don't know why I wasn't buying Defenders, but it doesn't matter because it didn't last much longer anyway. And uh, can, can, can I just can I just stop and say that we have this joke on this show specifically about secret brothers and mainly it all became a joke because there was this goofy friend of, of uh, one of my co-hosts and, you know, they saw beast and Wolverine and, and their haircuts were similar. So they decided, well, they must be secret brothers. So that's the joke. It's like something that is peripherally in common, but really has no relation and, and somebody just randomly decided that they must be brothers because of it and they're anything but brothers but 
it's come to mean a lot of things on this show, but essentially if, if, if we both think the same way and, and, and kind of, you know, have the same interests or whatever, it's like secret brothers. And there's no one I'm more secret brothers on this planet with than you. Cause I'm like, like like to me, I'm like, I was going to ask you, like, it's not going to be the same issue. I'm sure, but maybe it will be, maybe it'll shock me in a weird way, but like my my first comic was the treasury edition of Empire Strikes Back. Like so I was just curious like what I'm assuming yours was the monthly Star Wars comic, right? Yeah, yeah, it was the monthly Star Wars comic. It was uh, Star Wars 86. Okay. Okay. And and then and then the reason why it triggered me when when you said Defenders is like I I can't say it's like 100% true. Like it's not like Secret Wars 2 kickstarted my love of the Marvel universe, but when you said like, "Oh, I was collecting everything, but for some reason I didn't collect Defenders." And to this day, like, I feel like Defenders is still like a really big blind spot for me. And I, I'm always shocked by that because of how much I love Silver Surfer. And I was like, you'd think like in some of those overstreet price guides, I would have noticed that like there are Silver Surfer appearances in the Defenders. But for some reason, like, I guess that never registered somehow because like yourself, at least early on, you know, like I was just kind of like, oh, I'm I've never, you know. And and maybe in some ways, even to this day, like I, I feel like Defenders is still a pretty strong blind spot for me. So it cracks me up when I hear you say stuff like that, because I'm like, it, it, it it's like, oh, again, I feel like Leo DiCaprio and the meme. I'm just pointing like, uh, uh, like, like me too, me too, you know, or whatever. Well, if you want to try out the Defenders, my recommendation would be the Steve Gerber written issues. Okay. The early Defenders books, I, I felt were... So, so when I finally got around to reading them, which was not I think, until the late 90s, I think when I did 1990s. like a huge, a huge uh, Guardians of the Galaxy read through at one point. And because, you know, they appeared in some of those issues and because of the Gerber connection, like I, I remember, you know, like I said, my my reading of the the classic Defenders run is pretty spotty, but I, I think by now there's, I, I could say like I've read a handful of those or whatever, but I, you know, I, I, most people point to, to Gerber, I think when, when it comes to the Defenders. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, actually, I don't think he was the one who wrote them, but there were, there was a storyline in the issues uh, in the sixties, like six around issue, like 64 or so called, I think it was Defender for a day where funky Flashman. Uh, wait, Funky Flashman is Dollar Bill. It was Dollar Bill. Dollar Bill. Uh, yeah, I get confused sometimes between the two uh, huckster characters. Uh, <laughs> Dollar Bill. Dollar uh, Bill is, is Madman's agent, and Funky Flashman is uh, what Mr. Miracle's agent or something. Is, uh, yeah, based based on uh, Stanley himself, um, a parody of Stan Lee. But Dollar Bill puts out a call uh, for heroes to be a defender for a day. And like all these like C-list Marvel characters show up wanting to be a defender. And there's just too many of them. And Nighthawk goes a bit like nuts, you know, that there's too many defenders. But uh, I I haven't read it since the 1990s, but I remember uh, getting a big kick out of that story. For most of the 1980s, I I was very much a Marvel guy. The kids at school, this was a time, at least in my school, where pretty much every boy seemed to read comics. Not just, you know, your your geeky, nerdy, you know, kids, which I guess I would have fallen into that camp, but uh, like everybody seemed to be 
reading comic books. You seem to need to declare allegiance to Marvel or DC at that time. And my uh, two closest comic book collecting friends as kids and I made the decision very early on uh, that we were Marvel and Marvel only. So during the 80s, yeah, whatever money I had went to Marvel back issues. I was always a big discount bin, you know, quarter bin, 50 cent bin diver. And I'd pick up issues of, if I had a few bucks left over, I'd pick up, you know, Spider-Man book, Captain America book, uh, so on. And, you know, if it was Marvel, I was willing to give it a try. But then come 1989, there was a little something on the horizon called the Batman movie with uh, Tim Burton as director and uh, starring Michael Keaton and Jack Nicholson, as I'm sure everybody recalls. Never, never, never heard of it. Never heard of it. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't know what you're talking about. That, that was such a pop cultural craze. I don't Dude. know if I've lived through anything like it since then at least not comic book world hey i don't i don't know anybody who got uh uh faded uh barbie haircuts so i don't you know i don't yeah. think it compares you know like so i i still remember yeah having a phone call with one of my friends <laughs> one of those two guys who i said i was you know was friends with who you know we were comic collecting buddies in school all throughout the 80s and it was early 1989 and we were like this is huge this Batman thing, do we dare take the dive and try out DC Comics? And it was like <laughs> this earth-shattering decision for us. But I, I remember I, I remember being on the phone in my parents' room because, I mean, we only had two phones in the house at the time and no cordless phones. And uh, so I went up, to, yeah, I was in my parents' room on the phone in their room and uh, on the phone with my friend Hubert. And we decided, yeah, we're, we're, we're going to give DC a try. We're doing it. We're doing the DC. And when our third friend found out, he was mad at us at first because we had made the decision without directly consulting with him, but he was on board with it then. And I remember us going to our regular comic store and i i picked up detective 598 off the racks which was part one of the three-part blind justice anniversary story that was yeah. written by sam ham who was the screenwriter the, of yep. batman 89 and dennis cowan did the art and it was like 80 pages. It wasn't 80 pages of just story because there were tributes in the back by different authors and luminaries and pinups by top comic book artists. But I read that and it just blew me away. And I was now somebody who was buying DC Comics. I didn't stop buying Marvel. But now I, I realized the error of my ways, and there was this whole new world of superheroes to explore. And at first, I was just buying up everything Batman-related that I could, which was not easy because everything Batman-related was flying off the shelves at the time. And books that were probably in quarter bins the year before were now you know, suddenly wall books yeah, if they had Batman in them because everybody wanted whatever they could get their hands on. And I think there were people who had never even bought comics before who were coming in and buying oh, Batman stuff Batman. as well, yeah. just because, you know, the 
the craze was it was everywhere. I remember seeing I remember seeing a story about it on 2020, you know, which was for those who don't know, news program on Friday nights on ABC with Hugh Downs and Barbara Walters. I remember seeing stuff about it in the local media. The T-shirts started popping up everywhere even before the movie came out. And I was just, you know, thrilled. I mean, it was just an amazing time to be a Batman fan, to be a comic book fan. Yeah, yeah. But I wanted to you know, sort of expand my horizons beyond just Batman when it came to DC and gradually started, you know, picked up a random super adventures of Superman comic off of a newsstand, I remember, and Justice League America number 26, which it didn't hurt that Batman was featured prominently on that cover. But even before I bought that Adventures of uh, Superman comic, the first actual Superman comic that I bought was the one that we're going to talk about today, which wasn't even a a comic book that had Superman in the title or even on the cover. It was uh, World of Metropolis number one, which had come out the prior year. And what happened was... My class was going on a class trip to West Point, which was going to be a two-hour bus drive from where I lived in Queens in New York. And the day before, my friends and I decided to go to the comic store to you know, pick up some comics to bring on the bus with us. And I remember us going through the discount bin and it wasn't a quarter bin. It wasn't a 50 cent bin. It was a 40 cent bin. I think it was one of the only <laughs> times I ever saw a 40 cent bin. Hmm. And I, I don't remember what my friends picked up, but I picked up a few books. I think I picked up a, I think that was when I picked up a couple of all-star squadrons for the first time that were in there. But I saw the world of Metropolis number one in there. I knew what Metropolis was because, yeah, and I knew who Perry White was because I had seen all of the Superman movies. Even if I hadn't read the Superman comics, I did not realize that the redheaded guy in a business suit on the cover was Lex Luthor because my image of Lex Luthor at that point was still either Gene Hackman in the Superman movies or really the guy in the purple suit from the challenge of the super friends. Yeah. But I picked it up and I read it when I got home, really enjoyed it. And I remember bringing it on the bus the next day and we're waiting for the bus to leave our school. And my friends and I are sitting, you know, four across, you know, two and two, on the bus and sort of passing the comics around that we bought with us. And I had that one in my hand when my teacher came over to us and she said something like, oh, you're looking at comic books? You know, well, I read something about how comic books are really bad for you and that they're a terrible influence. It's like something out of like, you know, Frederick Wortham, Seduction of the Innocent in the 1950s or something. I don't know what she had read, but she's like, they're, you know, they're a bad influence. And I remember saying, and I, up until seventh grade, which was what, what I was in at the time, I was never one of those kids who would really ever talk back to a teacher. But I, I, I remember actually holding up The World of Metropolis number one to her and saying, 
this is a comic book about Superman's boss at the Daily Planet. You're going to tell me that that's a bad influence? And she just sort of like smirked at me and walked away. I mean, you know, he is he is smoking a stogie on the cover and so is Lex Luthor. So if you're if you're now smoking stogies, then perhaps perhaps it was a, a, a terrible influence on you. But um, as ridiculous as that sounds, this is probably a good point to, to start talking about the, the issue proper. Right. So I'll, I'll go into some of the details about it. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen. And I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the Quarterbin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. Of course, the comic title was World of Metropolis, issue number one. The publisher was DC Comics. The cover date was August 1988, but the on-sale date was April 12th, 1988. The cover price was a whopping dollar. The title is A Reporter's Story, written by John Byrne, penciler Wynne Mortimer, inkers Frank McLaughlin and Dick Giordano, letterer Todd Klein, colorist Tom Zuko, assistant editor Renee Witterstater, and editor Mike Carlin. And this is a pretty short and sweet synopsis, if I do say so myself. Perry White, editor-in-chief of The Daily Planet, flashes back to his days as an investigative reporter coming home to Metropolis from the war. Before the war, Perry and Lex Luthor were best friends, but when Lex plans to sell The Daily Planet, the rift in their friendship begins. Perry's girlfriend Alice isn't there to meet him at the airport due to Lex's Manipulations. Alice wasn't even sure if Perry was still alive, but later greets Perry back at his apartment. When Perry confronts Lex in person over the sellout, Lex's mind games continue as he has one of his female companions return an earring that Alice left at Lex's apartment from the other night. Later, a young Lois Lane is at the Daily Planet on a school field trip and sees Perry cursing out his co-workers that are going along with the plan to sell out the Daily Planet. Perry manages to call in a favor to a foreign investor named Ling, who agrees to buy the Daily Planet outright so long as Perry gives up chasing stories and takes the role of the newspaper's editor-in-chief. Alice and Perry reconcile and plan to wed, while Lex sees the headlines of both the planet's acquisition and Alice and Perry's upcoming nuptials and proceeds to cackle like a maniac. Later, Alice announces she is pregnant, and Perry celebrates the news with his Daily Planet employees with a set of stogies, like the cover. Alice secretly sheds a tear when she sees the LexCorp building, knowing the child's true father is not Perry. Back in present day, Perry meets Alice and his estranged son, Jerry, for lunch at Lacey's restaurant. 
Perry has a brief moment to consider chasing a headline with police sirens blaring and Superman flying after nearby, but realizes those days are long behind him and joins his wife and son in the restaurant. And that, in a nutshell, is the events of the world of Metropolis, in case anyone has never read it before. For me, like this, I mean, the, the reason why this is sort of cherished for me is this is what I consider a Spinnerack comic. You know, I bought this from Safeway. I bought this from the same place. I bought Man of Steel number one and number three three and number four and number five and for for a good number of years i never had issues two and six because you know newsstand distribution you know you kind of bought what was available and if you couldn't find it you sort of missed it and so it wasn't until i you know discovered back issue bins you know or or comic book specialty shops that had back issues i was like oh i can fill in the gaps i can buy man of steel number two and man of steel number six and have all six issues like this is fantastic but the reason why I bring that up is I, I guess may, maybe maybe nobody was going after the world of Metropolis, like maybe because Superman wasn't necessarily on the covers of these. I mean, I guess you could argue he was on the cover of number three, but, you know, Superman in costume, let's say, was not on the cover of any of these issues. Maybe they weren't flying off the newsstand shelves as, as much as the other comics, but I was able to get all four of these from the spinner rack. and. To me, that's almost like unheard of. You know what I mean? Like like that you were able to get things consecutively and, and, and read them sort of in real time from the newsstand like that rarely ever happened for me. So that that I always found sort of special and unique about this series. And I think all the issues, I mean, it's like this one focuses on Perry and then the next one is on Lois and then the next one's on Clark and the final one's on Jimmy. But like, you know, I, I think they're all like really wonderful stories. I mean, they all sort of thematically fit together, but you don't, you know, this kind of why I was like, let's just talk about the first issue for reasons like, but you know, you can, you know, take this as a done in one and it does kind of tell a complete story and a and a backstory with you know Perry White, Alice, and and Lex Luthor. But I'm, I guess like when when you did bring this on the bus with you and you finally like sat down and read it, like I mean obviously you you stood up to your teacher, so so you must have enjoyed <laughs> it, right? Like, but I mean I, I'm I'm kind of curious. Like this was like you said you were familiar with Superman because you had seen the Superman films and you knew who Perry White was. But this is uh, what aside from that Adventures of Superman issue, like this is one of your earliest like Superman related family comics, right? Yeah, so, no, this really one this one was the first the adventures okay. of superman one i think was a few weeks later i picked up off of a newsstand this was the first one that i actually plunked down money for and it was interesting because it was i i hadn't even read man of steel yet i would read it a few weeks later when i would took the trade paperback out of my local public library and you know this was at the t a time where the trade paperback section in the library was three books um yeah yeah there weren't too many back then yeah so to me it was sort of like it, it left me with a number of questions but i was intrigued by it in terms of this new, different version of lex luther for one thing who wasn't this bald cackling scientist and instead was this really evil businessman but who had a veneer of respectability to him that the rest of the world didn't realize that he was a bad guy and then just sort of 
the you know there was a certain sort of soap opera type mm-hmm. feel to the yeah. issue i mean you know as you mentioned in the synopsis i mean it was really an issue that was you know exploring I guess you can call it a love triangle of sorts, yeah, you know, yeah. between Perry and Alice and Lex. You know, it had the scenes with Lois in it, both in the present and in the past. And it was just a fun read. It was a night, it was a good done in one. And I was definitely, you know, left interested in, you know, finding out more about this. I, I didn't know what crisis was at this point. I did not know that uh, Superman had just been rebooted three years before, but I would learn very quickly about that because this was for whatever reason, you know, that it drew me in was my gateway to the world of John Burns post-crisis Superman. Yeah. I mean, I feel like this for me is pretty strong. I mean, I did, like I explained, I read, you know, select issues of Man of Steel before I read this. But it's weird to say because I I feel like even though I didn't read a whole ton of pre-crisis DC comics in my career early on, I felt like I had a understanding of that universe because I I was like a religious watcher of super friends. And I felt like I felt like I, you know, kind of like what you're saying, you 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 recognize like if it wasn't Gene Hackman, it was, you know, the the purple jumpsuit in Challenge of the Super Friends. So so you had you had some basis of comparison for that version of Lex Luthor, you know, the the sort of, I guess, you know, bronze you know, pre-crisis, you know, supervillain scientist Lex Luthor versus the the reimagined, you know, business tycoon who, you know, is is, is certainly ethically dubious, right? Like it's, this is all about betrayal of of Perry and Lex's friendship, betrayal of I don't know, I guess Alice's trust in Lex, you know, to take care of Perry, to tell her the truth, like all these things, you know, and he's a what a Machiavellian master manipulator and everything. And that that seems to be reflected heavily in this reinterpretation of Lex. He likes playing games with people. You know what I mean? Like he gets yeah. off on it, being in charge and being able to manipulate everything and 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 just probably like a kid who likes to break his toys. You know what I mean? He treats human beings that way. And that's what makes him, you know, the 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 evil person he is, right? And so I, I guess that's it was always interesting to me because I, I feel like, you know, I got into this on the ground floor and not just because there were new number ones, but because I was at the right age and I was a sponge. Like I wasn't I wasn't jaded. I I didn't you know, I wasn't like, what's a reboot? Like, this isn't like my old Superman's. You know what I mean? Like, I wasn't I wasn't you know, I was an angry old man with my you know fist in the air at the cloud over the <laughs> the Man of Steel reboot. Right. Like I was I would I, I just I, I and what's funny is, I mean, I, I have distinct memories of like showing some of the you know, like I used to like I mean, eventually I gave up on it because I knew they didn't care that much. But, you know, when I would get comics, I would like sit down with my mom or my dad and be like, this is what I bought. And I'd show them like the covers and they'd kind of nod and just be like, oh, OK, that's cool. That's cool. And, you know, my dad read probably more like Superboy comics than Superman comics, but he knew, you know, the, the, the essentials of what he read back then, you know, in the, in the fifties or whatever as a kid. Right. And he'd come to points, whether it was like Jimmy Olsen's signal watch. And I'm like, see, this is the issue where Jimmy builds the signal watch. And my dad's like, 
Jimmy Olsen didn't build no signal watch like Superman gave it to him, you know, like and so <laughs> that was that was like he was kind of voicing the the pre-crisis, you know, like stuff. And 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 it's interesting now to look back, like, I guess for me, like one of my I don't know, this might be a good time to go into it. But like one of my talking points, it's like, you know, they, they quickly in this issue, they establish Perry White and Lex Luthor used to be best friends, yeah. you know, and, and, and what's funny is, I mean, if you watch challenge of the super friends that's in it but you know the 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 kind of superboy lex luthor friendship that you know turns awry you know like to me that's i guess the argument would be well john byrne eliminated superboy from the continuity there was no superboy right in the man of steel reboot so then there couldn't be any friendship between you know quote unquote you know i mean i guess that's short-sighted because eventually they they find ways to do that even without superboy being in the picture right you've got like what 10 seasons of smallville that yeah. say otherwise right but but in terms of the, the way you know maybe maybe this three-dimensional thinking i guess right is is you know oh you know superboy's not there so you can't have that friendship but you you have it between you know, a young, well, I guess, you know, I don't know what, what is he in his, in his uh, mid thirties at the time. And, and now he's in his late forties, you know, in the present or something like that. But like, you've got it between, you know, two young men, right? Lex and, and Perry, instead of the, the Superboy Lex Luthor dynamic. And like, th that to me is interesting because I'm, I'm just kind of like, when you look at it, right, you're like, does that somehow, you know, take away from, the, the pre-crisis stuff or or even, you know, like now these days you point to stuff like, you know, Superman Birthright to Superman Secret Origins to e even to the I mean, did you read that um, that new um, The Last Days of Lex Luthor that just came out? No, yeah. I have not. It, 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 without spoiling it, like I thought it was pretty fantastic. I hope the next couple issues are as good, but without spoiling it, I mean, it definitely plays on. They used to be friends when they were younger, whether Superboy's involved or not. And like so so they, they do seem to keep going back to that. Well, so I, I yeah. think that's interesting. I think us coming to it as young readers, obviously, we we didn't have that knowledge ahead of time. But maybe knowing about it historically, does that does that change anything about this for you? Like, do you do you then take a, a different stance? Be like, why did Perry White steal my Superboy's relationship with Lex? Or do you do you since because I know you're. You know, you have an incredible fondness for I feel like I mean, maybe I'm speaking out of turn, but but I feel like you have an incredible fondness for this particular iteration of Lex Luthor. So like, is that something that I mean, obviously, this issue probably helped cultivate that, right? Yeah, I mean, this is definitely sort of my personal definitive version of Lex Luthor. And really, the continuity is established by John Byrne, starting with Man of Steel and, you know, with Marv Wolfman and Jerry Ordway, and then, you know, later on with Dan Jurgens and Roger Stern and so on and so forth. That will always be my Superman. So, you know, starting from, you know, 86 up until, I guess, around the time of Birthright was when they uh, started changing the continuity again. That That's the definitive superman and lex and lois and the whole cast that doesn't mean that i don't appreciate what came before or what came since i mean the uh i remember getting for my 13th birthday the greatest superman stories ever told trade paperback yeah, yeah. and loving it i mean that was with the exception of the last story in there being a reprint of john burns 
Superman issue two, which was also Lex centric. Yeah. yeah, that was all pre-crisis stuff. And I, you know, I absolutely loved it. And I have a tremendous fondness for the Mort Weisinger era yeah. of, yeah. you know, of the 60s with Kurt Swan and Jerry Siegel, you know, writing a lot of stories and Otto Binder, uh, even though I, you know, I acknowledge that from everything I've heard, Weisinger was a terrible human being to work for. But uh, the Superman books during his tenure as editor were absolutely fantastic and really imaginative, you know, clever stories. But I sort of appreciate that almost as sort of like a historical artifact as opposed to the burn era stuff, which to me was, okay, this is what's happening now. So for me, the whole concept of Lex and Superboy having been friends beforehand, that's great. And listen, I watched Smallville from the first episode to the last episode. I stuck with it all 10 seasons. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, I was a big fan of that show. But that knowing that relationship between the two characters doesn't really alter or diminish or in any way change. Change how you feel about that. How I feel about World of Metropolis and the... Uh, the Perry Luther dynamic, especially since in the, you know, there was the whole sort of subplot, whatever you want to call it, that went on for quite a while relating to Jerry White, Perry's son, right. being, you know, Luther's biological son. So I guess pointing out like specific notes I had, the the, the first time we see Lex in story is on page five, and he's already kind of setting up manipulations and mind games and everything. And he's on the phone with one guy, filling him in on Perry arriving at the airport. And then, you know, Alice is there as well, kind of knowing he's up to something, but she can't quite, you know, she's not smart enough. She can't see all of his, you know, manipulations. You know, he's got so many balls in the air and wheels in motion and all that other stuff. But something struck me and this probably was not, I mean, it couldn't have been intentional because this comic came out a year before the second season of the Superboy syndicated TV series ever came on. But like, I was kind of struck because I'm sitting there going, man, he looks so much like Sherman Howard in that i don't know if you remember but like they had they had some guy who was i, I forget who played lex luther at first but like in the first season he was kind of like a kind of young muscular handball and then you know he lost his hair at the end of it and was like you know screaming at the camera and it was it was really really hammy and they recast superboy and lex luther for the second season yeah and 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 then they did this whole thing where they, they tried to for some reason they didn't have this weird subplot with changing the actors for Superboy, but for with Lex, for some reason, they had to explain it. So it was like he 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 underwent plastic surgery. And then it's like somehow that plastic surgery, like added like 15 years to him. And he was <laughs> he was somehow Sherman Howard all of a sudden. But like Sherman Howard was pretty great on on that show. And like it, it in some ways, like I could see if they made like somehow if you could magically go back to 1989 and do like a, I don't know, a stage teleplay of, of some of this, you know, you could say it's like a, almost like a, a, a romance comic, right? Like, a, a you know, or, or kind of deals with betrayals and, and soap opera type stuff. You know, if you, if you were to make the soap opera three camera version of, of this issue, you know, you could totally cast Sherman Howard again as, as Lex Luthor in this, you know, he's got like, he's not 
bald, but he is balding. You know what I mean? Like, like it's, it's, it's like it's on its way, right? Like, so I don't, you know, I don't know. That's just something that struck me when I was, when I was looking at this again. Maybe that had something to do with his casting. Maybe they saw this issue and thought of him, you know, type thing. When they were casting, then uh... I guess the the other thing I had that might be a good point of discussion is what do you think about the the transitions in this like some of them i think work because you know it's a story and it's told from you know present day you know perry white you know like as you said you're reading the superman comics of now and 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 they're kind of flashing back to you know sort of the their friendship coming undone you know the sweater coming unraveled whatever you want to call it and there are certain moments where I think it works really well, like like when it goes from, you know, page three to page four, it's to me, it's a pretty clean break. You know, you've got, you know, you open with a couple pages of Superman fighting an alien that cuts to like the photo that Jimmy takes, you know, Perry's sitting there looking at the photo that gets put on the front cover, you know, Clark and Jimmy and Lois are all there with Perry and then that, you know, that headline about Ho Chi Minh City, right? It it brings it all back to him. And so he starts getting lost in thought. And then by the time you turn to page four, it's like you're you're back to young Perry getting off the plane, taking the cab, wondering why nobody's there to meet him. But then when you get to like page seven, it, it's one of those things where I'm like, I, I was trying to figure it out because there there's there's a number of these transitions. And later, I feel like they're you could tell they're all from the point of view of Perry. Like like it's something, you know, Perry sees even that transition from from page three to four. The reason why it's clean is not just because it's one page and then another page like that. It's a clean break. But it also is like Perry sees the headline, the city in the headline triggers the flashback and it makes him remember when he was coming home from Ho Chi Minh City. And then it takes him down that whole road down memory lane. So it's like something that is triggered by Perry. But what's weird is they they cut to this these Lex and Alice interludes that Perry would have no knowledge of unless maybe somehow Alice told him. But then even Alice leaves and you still have like Lex there with his assistant and Lex doing all these kind of you know, I mean, th- that's your first taste of Lex Luthor. You know, it's like he's 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 got that like cackling like a, a, a madman series of, of panels. And then he does this like, you know, creepy thing where he's like, you know, caressing the, the chin of the assistant who's who's, you know, all dolled up. And then he's whispering something to her and you can tell she's clearly disturbed. Like like that's the thing about when Mortimer that's great is like the. It's like the expression is she's got a smile, but it's it's this forced like you can tell by the look on her face, like in the two panels, like whatever he's whispered to her has probably chilled her to the bone. But in order to stay employed, she's got to keep the smile. Right. And 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 of course, he doesn't care. He's just, you know, cackling away because he, he knows it's like the greatest thing ever. He's having fun, you know, breaking the toys or whatever. And then then it transitions back to the present. And yeah. the only connection I could see is like, oh, well, it's Lex mistreating his assistant and it's Perry obviously being a good boss to his assistant in the present day at the Daily Planet. But like that to me felt awkward. And then when you get to uh, I'm trying to think of like 
there's there's other transitions later on, like when the phone rings, right? Like that snaps him out of the the past. And when he's walking through the office, it's like I, I guess that was an interesting one too, because it's uh, I think it's page fourteen. He's walking through the office present day. And then he he sort of flashes back to that same office when Lois, a young Lois, is on the field trip. And then there's that part of me that wondered if in the the middle panel where you can see Perry's looking at the lay of the the planet, I was like, well, there's this one lady who's holding up a, a page, a book, a something or other. And I'm like, I wonder if that was supposed to be Lois Lane, but then it was colored like pre-crisis Lois Lane or something. And that somehow triggered the flashback to Lois's field trip, or if it was just the setting somehow that triggered it back. And I, I don't know one way or the other, but like, I, I guess I was just in this read through, I sort of became hyper-focused on how things transitioned, you know, back and forth, you know, like, and, and, you know, to, to the, from the past to the present and how that played. And I, I kind of wondered how all those transitions played for you. Yeah. I looked at the issue on the DC infinite app this morning. It was the first time I looked at the issue in, in, in quite some time and, you know, read the whole thing. And yeah, I thought the same thing, especially the first time it happens on page seven, like in terms of the it's sort of like non sequitur transition. It's almost like it should be like a, they're embarrassed to do the Silver Age thing, like which would have, you know, you would have made them like like dream panels or bubble. Pan, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like, remember when this happened, you know, and they, and they they do the little dream panel or whatever. But it's like, oh, no, this is post crisis. Like comics aren't just for kids. Like they, they all have to be like straight, hard you know, square panels or whatever or something like that. Like, that's kind of what that feels like. Yeah, I feel like if this issue was being produced today with this exact page and panel layout, they'd probably do the coloring in a slightly different shade, mm. like from mm. the past scenes, in order to show that we're jumping forth between the past and the present. Because, okay. yeah, I, I, I thought the same thing when I was reading it this morning and I was trying to think back because, you know, it's been, it's been some time since I sat down and actually read the issue. And I'm thinking, did that strike me as odd when I read the, when I've read this in the past way back when, and I don't have any recollection. I mean, I, when I, I was I'm younger sure I thinking wasn't. it was odd, but definitely, you know, reading it today after yeah. so long. Yeah. You, sort of hit me like a ton of bricks, especially the first time it happens. I mean, I'm sure I wasn't overanalyzing this when I was a little kid. I'm sure I just flipped through the pages and enjoyed the story and everything. That's that's kind of what I mean by I was like a little sponge and I wasn't, you know, this this is a different format, right? You're you're podcasting, you're getting all, you know, ca- you know, kind of hyper analytical about what what goes on. But I mean, there's plenty of things to hyper analyze that I think are really great. Like the 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 page 9, I'm going to call it the the silent snake eyes page, but it's, you know, it's basically like when Perry and Alice reunite for the first time, like she wasn't waiting for him at the airport. And, you know, it, it's weird because you you could easily be like, what the fuck? Bitch wasn't waiting for him at the airport. What's wrong with her? <laughs> but but if, if you if you understand the, the subtleties, the nuances of the story, it's like Lex didn't tell her like she 
thought he was dead for a little you know like like there's there's that aspect so so and this is like a very i mean the storytelling on that page is great like he's you can see he's coming out of the front door he's waiting for her she comes off the the lift and the little gate opens and you can see they're both happy to see each other they embrace and kiss and the door is closed and guess what wow you know but you don't even like there's nothing like tawdry about it but it's like all of it's like perfectly communicated even if you're a little kid you know like oh you know like they're they're you know they're boyfriend and girlfriends you know like like yep. you get you 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 know you know what what that means you know yeah absolutely and that is definitely one of the standout pages in the book I mean, what I, who is it who has said in the past, I know I've read this multiple times, you know, the notion that you should be able to read a comic book and know what's going on without, without reading the dialogue. The dialogue and, uh, yeah, that's certainly the case it's, with this page. Yeah, this is a textbook example because there, there literally is no dialogue in it, and it still has fantastic storytelling, right? Yeah, I mean, Wynn Mortimer did... I thought a really good job with this miniseries. I mean, this would definitely have been the first time that I had ever seen any of his art. So I would have known nothing about him that, you know, he was an old, I guess, an old timer type artist at this point, which they used on this series and the, I was going to say prequel series, but I guess predecessor series that World of Metropolis was sort of the third part of a three separate miniseries that delved into the past and the backgrounds of Superman's supporting characters, starting with uh, World of Krypton, then World of Smallville, and then finally with World of Metropolis. Same thing with World of Smallville in that you had Kurt Schaffenberger doing the art on that, who was somebody who had drawn you know, Superman and Supergirl. Mm-hmm back in the 60s and you know went all the way back to the Marvel family in the 40s and these artists had gotten i think a bit displaced by the burn reboot because they you still had artists who have been working on Superman for decades working on the character you know well into the 80s and then 1986 rolls around and they were all out of work essentially yeah. and so i don't want to say that this was like a consolation prize but it was nice to bring back I, I didn't realize this at the time but you know looking back now it was nice to have those artists brought back to work on these series and they did great jobs yeah. with them for Page 12, there's that top panel, and I'm going to call it the panel with Lex and his pool babes. And, yeah. and, and like, I mean, it, it, and of course, you know, Perry's kind of sitting there with his hands on his hips, kind of, you know, you can, you can see the disapproval in the body language, you know, like, and, and, you know, this is where they kind of come head to head over, you know, he's selling the planet. There's all this kind of talk about how newspapers are anachronistic, you know, and I, I, I still find that like amusing to me because this is what, like 1988. And, and it's like, to me, I'm like, is it weird to you? Like, Dude, newspapers were anachronistic like back in the 60s and early 70s, like according to if you follow the potential timeline of, you know, the past of this story, you know, because because, you know, you had, you know, Superman, Clark Kent working for Galaxy Broadcasting, even in the Bronze Age. Right. They were they were it's like it's like they were trying to move away from the great metropolitan newspaper. But then, like, I, I feel like 
even in the reboots, you know, they, they always struggle to, you know, it seems like for TV series and films, like it's like this fantastic setting. It's like the, the where Superman gets the lowdown on all his things he needs to do, you know, type thing. It's like, it's like even Smallville, you know, like that's in, what the 2010s, you know, it's like the, even there, there was still, they were always going to the Daily Planet. So I, I, I find that like fascinating. It's like they keep saying that they're anachronistic, but yet they, they keep using the Daily Planet as a setting. And and then w- what it also makes me think of is, and I'm, I'm kind of curious what your take on is this, because like I said, you are, you know, you, you are fond of this version of Lex. I don't even know if I agree with this or not, but I just want to voice it as like a devil's advocate. Like the most common criticism I remember hearing about when this reimagining of Lex took place was, you know, the people going like, well, you just made him kingpin, you know, like he was just another another kingpin and and not not Lex Luthor anymore. And what I got out of the the Lex and his pool babe scene was almost like I started thinking about like the Marvel Cinematic Universe and Tony Stark and his now, you know, almost a list appeal like grandmas know who Tony Stark is now. Yeah. And this could easily have been a Tony Stark scene where he's the hero, but still surrounded by a pool of booth babes where you're, you know, quote unquote, vicariously living through, you know, Bruce Wayne or Tony Stark or whatever. Right. And, and he's got all these, you know, cute ladies around and all this other stuff. Right. And and maybe with Bruce Wayne, it's all an act. You know, maybe with Tony Stark, it's you know, maybe with Tony Stark, it's not an act. But but, it, you know, there, there's there's an element of, uh, you know, frivolousness to it. But to me, it seems like this version of Lex, at least in this particular panel, is more like a dark version of Tony Stark than than a, a kingpin knockoff. But, I, you know, that that's what I was thinking when I did this reread. But I'm just curious, like what you think about that criticism and, and if you had any response to it or, or what, you know, kind of like what your, you know, feel is on on, you know, these aspects it's trying to introduce, especially with. I, I guess what I was trying to refer to it as is like Lex being a manipulator of the highest order, you know, like he's an abusive employer. He's he's specifically sexually abusive to all of these female assistants, you know, like that that whole kind of vibe, whether it's, you know, something like this miniseries. But I feel like it it, it sprawls out to all of Burns portrayal of Lex. You know, there was that there's that sort of incredibly uh harsh uh backup story in superman number eight you know where he he does the uh indecent proposal to the one diner waitress or whatever and then you know you've got like the unauthorized biography of lex luther you know and that to me was like so gritty but also sultry i don't know like like it, it, you know it was like one of those books where it was like seedy and like it was weird to see like you know it, was, it only had clark kent as an investigative reporter and you know he he kind of was you know helpless in some ways which is weird to see superman helpless because it's it's like he's limited to his clark kent persona and he can't get the dirt on lex or whatever you know like the the whole the whole thing. And I don't know, I, I, I was just kind of curious, like, w- you know, what your take is on all that, either the, the criticism or, or how, how, you know, Byrne chose to kind of approach Lex Luthor in those terms. Well, I mean, I think Wilson Fisk from his first appearance in Amazing Spider-Man in the 1960s through, even if we're just taking the character up until the late 
80s when this version of Lex Luthor became, you know, the the new definitive version of the character. Even the way he was drawn, it was always clearly that he was like a bad guy. I mean, with that the white jacket and, and the cane with like the, the the jewel on it or whatever at the the tip the handle, it was always clearly like a mob boss type. Even if you want to say that it was, you know, something like a Don Corleone, like a respectable mob boss, it was always still clearly mob boss. Whereas this version of Lex Luthor, I never got mob boss Mm. feel from the character other than possibly in that unauthorized biography of Lex Luthor, which I think, you know, your description of it as kind of seedy in terms of the Mm -hmm. vibe is dead on. Um, It's a great great story yeah yeah um, fantastic but this instead was you know alex luther who's the head of a multinational corporation he's got scientists working for him he has a uh, outwardly you know charismatic personality people on the street like you know they like him i mean ultimately this was the version that would go on to become president in yeah. the year 2000 just just as a sidebar like that that cemented me falling in love with smallville as a television series when they had the the fortune teller episode and she grabs rosenbaum's hand and te- and sees his future and he's he's in the white suit with the black glove and he's in the oval office and then it's yeah. starts like raining blood all over the white suit i was like Oh, this show knows it's shit. This is so cool. <laughs> like I was, I was all from then on. I was like hooked to that show. But yeah, I mean, Wilson Fisk always—he always seemed seedy. Yeah. Whereas Lex in this incarnation, he's clearly a bad guy. But it's—it is more sort of like a twisted version of the tony stark that people know and love today the one that we've gotten you know from the uh, mcu and more recent portrayals in the comic books yeah because they i mean you know you you can it's interesting because it's like there's the the cd aspect of lex where he's got scientists working for him where he appropriates their work and steals their work but then there's also like the Lex that's more Tony Stark, where it's like, what does he need with all these other scientists? Like he's smarter than all of them together. But, you know, maybe there's some kind of corporate reason why he's, you know, assembled them all so that they don't go, you know, screwing up, you know, his potential endeavors. You know, it's like it's it's sort of like a plan within a plan, you know, a a Xanatos gambit or whatever it is. Right. And when they, you know, there was the whole storyline then, not too long before the death of Superman storyline that went on for quite some time where Lex basically dies. I don't feel like I'm spoiling something if it's 30 years ago. Spoiler, Um, they saved his brain. Yes. And uh, he comes back as his, you know, his son. It's essentially a clone where it's like his long lost Australian son with a luscious head of red hair. But it's Lex. And uh, he is completely you know the world falls in love with him even superman likes him yeah because he's so charming and charismatic and he ends up dating the matrix version of supergirl i i don't think wilson fisk would be capable of that on his pulling that off he he can only he can only get typhoid mary he's not gonna 
he's not going to start dating Miss Marvel anytime soon no. or Carol Danvers or whatever. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. So one of my other notes, and this is, this is partially a note because I'm, I'm genuinely uh, fascinated with this and would have been curious to see this character make multiple appearances, but also cause I'm, I'm into the nerd minutia of it all. But as far as I know, this is the first and only time that uh, business partner Ling, who buys the Daily Planet for Perry, ever appears. And after this, my super nerd cred, which will be that uh, the the publisher owner of record, eventually, I think by the time like Louise Simonson and Bogdanov are doing the Man of Steel book, is uh, Franklin Stern. Yeah. So I don't know how it goes from Ling to Franklin Stern, but somewhere along the way, that must happen or they just ignored this and it was always Franklin Stern or something like that, like post zero hour, you know, whatever kind of goofball reason you want to give for the reboot. And then after that, probably, you know, me going to your fast forwarding to me in the chronology of I, I now am, you know, shaking my fist at the cloud like angry old man with the onion on my belt. I'm like, eventually Bruce Wayne is the owner of the Daily Planet, which I'm like, why? But okay, whatever, you know, like that that kind of thing. But having said all that, I mean, I, I thought that exchange between them was fascinating. He's like, oh, I don't know if I want to buy this, you know, like, like, but, you know, if you agree, you know, if you if you give up the ghost, like you can't be a reporter chasing stories like I need you to be in charge of it all. Like, that's the trade off. That's the deal with the devil he had to make to give up kind of what he loves to keep what he loves going, I, I guess. I, I, I don't know, like what your take on that is. I mean, I, I liked that. I thought, though, even the more interesting part of that was the impression that. Perry sort of didn't report on all of Ling's activities because he saw the potential good in him mm -hmm. and that Ling had something of a shady past that mm -hmm. Lex, I mean, that uh, Perry did not uh, disclose, which you would think that that's kind of uh, contrary con to con the character. Interest, maybe, or, 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 or his... Well, you know, at this point, I mean, I guess you could argue, I mean, he's, he was he was best friends with Lex Luthor up until just recently, so maybe maybe there was more of a more more wiggle room, you know? Like, yeah. I don't know. What do you, what do you think about the, the reconciliation between Alice and Perry in this? Like, do you, do you feel like it's, it's earned? Like, do you, do you feel like like sometimes I see stuff like this, you know, it reminds me of like I had friends that were fathers to children that were not uh, their blood relations, you know, and I I sit there and be um, in awe of that, you know, like 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 I did my respect or my my admiration for that, you know, and it's like it's like one of those things where it's like, I don't know, like there, there's that part of me that's like, is, is this. Is this something that's admirable, like that he he's he's he, he loves Alice so much and, and, and he puts all this behind them and, you know, continues onward? Or, or is there something about that that, you know, it makes me think of, you know, like things like whatever happened in the man of tomorrow, like back then, even then they were introducing this thing of like, oh, how do we make Alice and Perry interesting? Like we, we have them on the brink of divorce and then by the end of it, they're happily reconciled. Like it seems like that's a maybe a trope for those characters to play with and, and just an easy thing to do. But, you know, I guess, you know, I thought that would be something interesting because again, like I said, I mean, you can't, you can't pin it all on Alice, right? Because 
I mean, Lex messed the whole, you know what I mean? Like Lex just messed everything up. I mean, if, if, if all you knew was, oh, Perry went off to report in Vietnam and now he's not coming back because he's probably dead. I think he's dead. Like he's probably dead. You want to sleep with me? Cause he's dead. Like that, that to me is what I imagine happened. You know what I mean? And she's like, well, he's rich. He's powerful. Perry's dead. Okay. You know, like, like, and it's like, part of you is like, oh, that's like, to me, if I was Perry, that would kill me. You know, but but I guess he doesn't let that, you know, do that to him. Do you know what I mean? Like he's definitely stronger than that. So, but I'm I'm curious, like what your take on that is. Well, uh, yeah, it's interesting because he. It's not clear. You know, just if you're reading this comic on its own, this particular issue, you would think that he thinks it's his son. So I think he comes to the realization later on that it may not have been but it's sort of like an odd it's an odd situation because he you know he thinks it's his at some point he probably comes to realize that he's not but you know he's raising the kid they also have you know as jerry's older as is established in the comics they don't exactly have a good relationship and is that bad relationship in any way related to maybe perry not you know knowing even if he's not admitting mm -hmm. it that it's not or, or, his or having, having doubts right yeah you know spoiler warning you know yet again i mean jerry does not meet a good end no no i i don't know i don't because it's not clear what perry knows i mean it's certainly if somebody goes into a relationship where they know you know this is not my biological child but i'm raising this kid as my own and they love that kid and that's wonderful and that's great but in this, is it like, oh, he thought it was his? Yeah, is, and is it that, wasn't. Yeah, it's a bit that, of a different scenario. Then, 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 does that make you rethink Alice again? Right? Is she contribute? I mean, that, that I guess that's the question too. Is my my favorite page? Like, I, I know we talked about like the great pages in this, and and I'm sure this is a favorite of yours as well. But my favorite page is 21, and and it's you know, there's there's no Superman on it. There's no Perry. It's just it, Lex has handed the the planet headline. It says the planet saved. And then when he turns to the, the nuptial pages or the announcement pages that say that, you know, Perry's, you know, married, you know, Alice Spencer, then it ends with him just cackling like a maniac. And I'm like, is is Jerry the punchline? Yeah. Like, is that that that's the punchline, right? Like, like, oh, you dumb sap, like, like, look at what I've done and how funny it is. Like, and, and if that's the case, then I mean, that's one of those things where, I mean, Lex literally had the last laugh, right? And the thing, too, where Alice looks at the LexCorp building, does she know? Is she or is she not sure? Because if she's confident that it's Lex's child and she's not telling Perry that, that's that's not a great thing. Yeah. You know, it's been a while. Like, I, I, I feel like they eventually broached this in some way, shape or form. I mean, eventually, I think at least Jerry finds out. Right. Like, if not, if not Perry and Alice talking to each other about it. But. It's been so long. I, I don't remember all the details. About yeah, it. I, I mean, those remember. were issues that I read as they were new and we're talking yeah. 30 years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that kind of escapes me unless I you know went out of my way to look it up and everything. But I mean, I guess I guess to close out like and kind of wrap this up, like the the other main reason 
you know, th this is part of my theme with these shows. I'm inviting my buddies from comic art fans. If I understand correctly, you, you have some original art from this issue. So I, do you want to maybe talk about that a little bit? Or maybe, I, I don't know if there's any excitement to how how those came to be, or if it's just I, I saw it at an auction, I bid on it and I won. But, you know, I'm, I just thought that would be fascinating for folks listening to, to hear. Yeah, so I mean, it, it was basically, yeah, the I, it popped up in an auction. I got very excited and you know went after it. But I have two pieces from this issue. The first one that I got is the I have the final page. Yeah, from the issue, which is you know it's back in the present. Perry is meeting Alice and Jerry for lunch. They see a police car drive by with its sirens wailing and Superman flies above overhead. And, you know, Perry wants to sort of run off and get the story of what's going on. But Alice looks at him, you know, says Perry. And from the look on his face, Perry's reluctantly saying, you know, yes, I'm coming. I'm coming. And they go into the restaurant, which sort of is a nice capper for the issue. So when that came up at auction, it was one of those things where it's like, all right, I know that this is not a historically significant page to probably anybody else but me. But I'm just, you know, hoping beyond hope that there isn't somebody out there somewhere who sees this page at auction. And, you know, guess what? It's a, it means something to them as well. Luckily, yeah, I put in my bid. I won. And I don't know who who sold it, who put it up for auction, but they'd probably be disappointed to hear that I put in a bid that was something like 12 times what the final price was <laughs> because I wanted to make sure I got it. And so, yeah, thankfully for me, there was nobody else competing, really competing for it because I got it for a song. The other piece that I have from the issue, which cost a, a little bit more than that final page, is I have the cover, which is huge for me for a couple of reasons. One, I've long wanted a John Byrne cover, and it may not be the flashiest John Byrne cover in the world. I mean, it doesn't even have any superheroes on it, but it's still a Byrne cover from the 80s, from his Superman era, and it, it means a lot to me on multiple levels. You can Being you can, Byrne, being the first Superman that, comic I got. You can tell that teacher, hey, lady. This this didn't have a bad influence on me. Yes. I just I just spent an extreme amount of money on uh, on a comic book cover. That's all. Exactly. So yeah, I mean I, I was thrilled to get it. Big John Byrne fan. I know a lot of people when they talk about their love for John Byrne. Oftentimes it's X Men is the first thing that comes to mind. If not X Men, perhaps the Fantastic Four. And I love his X-Men, and I love his Fantastic Four. First issue of Fantastic Four I ever got was uh, 281, which was, uh, you know, during his run. But uh, his Superman run holds a particular spot in my heart. And if I had to pick what was my favorite thing that Byrne has done, it'd be, it'd be tough, you know, deciding between Superman and Fantastic Four. Yeah, I love the Superman stuff a great deal. So, I mean, I, I would probably side with that. Although, I mean, I, I remember getting a bunch of Fantastic Four issues when the, the comic industry collapsed in like the mid 90s. You know, like there were there there were tons of stores that were going out of business with all their cheap comics. And I think that's when I I finally made the leap and bought like, you know, a whole crap ton of, uh, you know, John Byrne 
Fantastic Four is at, at a very nice discount, you know, like type thing. I mean, th this issue for me is is pretty special. Like I said, it's a spinner rack issue. I, I enjoyed the entire miniseries and the novelty of it was something I was actually able to complete with the newsstand distribution, which always sort of fascinated me. I, I think this story, you know, it, it, it's it, I think it fits that mold of this is I, I forget how I say it, but I, I usually say it's, you know, it, it's something that is mature but not or you know it's like it's like you know adult but not mature or mature but not adult or whatever and i guess what i mean by that is it's not hbo spawn you know it's not like just titties and gore and what you know adults right like this is tv ma adults or whatever because there's foul language and and nudity and this and that but it's it's certainly mature in its subject matter and themes and everything and 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 i think that Maybe this isn't always true, but but that maturity made this particular issue go hand in hand with being very compelling. You know, it was a compelling read. And, you know, whether you were, you know, I don't know, eight years old or whether you're, you know, reading it today. Right. Like it still kind of holds up as being a compelling read. So I think if if anybody hasn't read The World of Metropolis, I would I would still recommend it. I would, you know, tell them to go check it out and everything. But I think we're I think we're pretty much wrapped up. I think normally at this point, I I usually turn it over to folks and, you know, if they have some kind of, you know, podcast or show or things to promote or whatever. But I mean, I don't know. Do, do you want to like promote your calf or or uh, or or, you know, your comic art fans page or, or, or give out like some social media if people want to contact you with, uh, you know, I don't know, like uh, awesome like comic page info or something like that? Yeah, I really have nothing to plug. <laughs> I'm on Comic Art Fans as Michael McIsaac, so feel free to uh, check out my gallery there, and uh, you can shoot me a message through there as well if you want to reach out about anything. Yeah, that that that's it. I guess I'm uh, fairly boring when it comes to my uh, internet media, social media presence. <laughs> Oh, no man like i do definitely check out michael mcisaac's calf it's it's a it's a great page it's got a lot of great art on it and everything and i will just go into uh you know our our usual preamble if you guys have any comments questions and or concerns you can reach out to us at fanholespodcast at gmail.com and we can be streamed we're on google play spotify and amazon music we're on apple podcasts we are on uh, the podcast is on all kinds of social media we're on tumblr twitter instagram facebook we appreciate all the likes hearts shares and retweets that we receive and just to close out i, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on like this is always a lot of fun and again i i, I always feel like we're very simpatico you know our, our comic reading history and everything so i was i was looking forward to trying to get you on the show and, and and have a little chat about comics and i knew how much this comic meant to you and and i really enjoy it too so i figured it was was the perfect storm yeah no i, I had a great time i appreciate it and yeah I, you know all, all, i share all the same sentiments i mean when i see something comic book or comic art related that i think is cool you're the first person that i'll reach out to because i you know if there's anybody that I know who I think is going to react the same way I did. It's you. Red, red. All right. Well, uh, good night, everybody. And, you know, keep uh, keep listening.
bat t-shirts, bat posters, bat sneakers, bat mania is here. But will Batman bring them to the bijou? Is America dying to see yet another comic book character brought to the silver screen? In recent years, cartoon characters have had a mixed record at the box office. Superman soared, Popeye got sand in his face. So will Batman go zonk or zowie? Well, we'll know soon after next week's premiere. In the meantime, Bob Brown has another Hollywood caper making a film of the caped crusader. <laughs>